So welcome to the GUT Podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and in my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month we're discussing the August 2016 Editor's Choice Manuscript entitled Surveillance Endoscopy is Associated with Improved Outcomes of Esophageal Adenocarcinoma Detected in Patients with Barrett's Esophagus. This is presented by a group from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston in the USA and I'm delighted to be joined today by the primary author of the paper, Dr. Hashim El-Sirag, who's head of the section of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Baylor. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So Barrett's esophagus is uh, the only known pre-neoplastic or pre-cancerous lesion for uh, esophageal adenocarcinoma, uh, a highly fatal cancer, uh, the incidence of which is rising uh, in many places, uh, both in North America and uh, the United States. Uh, Once uh, this uh, lesion, that is Barrett's esophagus, is detected, Uh, Current practice guidelines, and there are many of those on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, recommend, um, in general, uh, surveillance endoscopy, which means performing of uh, upper endoscopy uh, during uh, certain periods that vary between the guidelines, but generally speaking, between uh, three to five years, uh, to look for Uh, changes in the Barrett's esophagus that indicate the uh, likelihood of progressing towards esophageal adenocarcinoma. Uh, These changes are called dysplasia. And then uh, once dysplasia is found, uh, currently there are potentially curative ablative therapies to remove the dysplasia. Um, That's one purpose for the surveillance. Uh, The other declared purpose for the surveillance is Um, the ability to identify uh, cancer at an early stage uh, when curative therapies such as esophagectomy could be applied. And uh, the implication here is by doing this early detection and finding an early stage and applying treatment, there will be a benefit uh, in terms of prolonging survival or reducing cancer-related mortality. Uh, So in brief, uh, all guidelines uh, recommend some sort of periodic endoscopic surveillance for patients with non-dysplastic Barrett's esophagus uh, for the purpose of finding either dysplasia or early cancer. So over the years, there's been a bit of debate in the literature of the effectiveness of this endoscopic surveillance. So can you summarize the previous literature on this topic? Certainly. The debate uh, arises primarily um, that in in guidelines to screen for cancer in general, uh, the holy grail or the standard, the gold standard, is to demonstrate that the screening modality uh, will lead to reduction in cancer-related deaths, which is indeed a very high bar. Very few screening modalities have uh, achieved this bar, and, and notably, for example, colorectal cancer screening over multiple iterations achieved this uh, large goal. Uh, there's a lot of debate about breast cancer screening, particularly among relatively younger women, uh, because the issue of mortality reduction has not been proven. So going back to Barrett's esophagus, uh, there has not been 
a single study that belongs to the gold standard of studies, which is randomized controlled trials of patients with Barrett's being randomized to endoscopic screening or any type of screening versus no screening and showing that cancer-related mortality is decreased. Simply, such a trial has not been conducted for many logistical and possibly ethical issues. The second line of evidence, which is cohort studies or case control studies, uh, produce conflicting findings and occasionally uh, simple inability of the studies to examine the all-important endpoint, which is the reduction in cancer-related mortality. The reason for this uh, inability that cancer, although rising, uh, remains a relatively infrequent and indeed rare in patients with Barrett's esophagus. So one can imagine conducting a cohort studies where you have hundreds or thousands of patients with Barrett's esophagus, and if you follow them for a few years, uh, the ability to identify new cases of cancer is quite limited. So the existing literature that followed cohort study design uh, have resulted in cases of cancer that are in the teens or low 20s. Uh, which by definition means uh, quite unable to examine the effect of uh, surveillance uh, on uh, the cancer-related deaths in these cases. The other type of study design is looking uh, at existing cases of cancer and then going backward in their history to look whether they received surveillance or not and to uh, associate that receipt of surveillance uh, with improvement uh, in outcomes. And the studies have been small and, generally speaking, uh, have not settled on a message. So given that we uh, have practice guidelines that advocate endoscopic surveillance and that uh, the proof for improvement in mortality has not been shown, that creates one major area of controversy. Uh, the other related area of controversy is uh, the amount of cost, effort, and uh, possible harm related to uh, performing endoscopy repeatedly. So neither the effectiveness nor the cost effectiveness of surveillance uh, has been settled yet. Um, as a final point, the debate on surveillance for Barrett's esophagus uh, has received renewed uh, interest and renewed uh, discussion, uh, much of which is pushing towards doing more as opposed to doing less. And the, the factor that changed the debate is the introduction of endoscopic ablation of Barrett's esophagus and endoscopic resection of early cancer. Thus, the, the availability of curative modalities of therapy that can be done with minimum harm and can be offered to elderly and frail patients. And that was what miss, was missing in the debate, let's say, five to 10 years ago, where surgery, which is a, a highly, highly uh, invasive, dangerous, complicated type of surgery removing the esophagus, uh, could not be offered to most patients in whom the cancer was detected as part of a surveillance program. So, um, uh, our study basically wanted to tackle the issue of can endoscopic surveillance reduce 
cancer-related deaths among patients who are known to have Barrett's esophagus who receive endoscopic uh, surveillance, a question that indeed has not been addressed in that specificity by previous studies. So moving on to your study now, um, you've just told us the objective of your study, so tell us more about your patient population. The patient population in, in our study uh, was, was relatively unique, and the uniqueness of this patient population, which relates to uh, the limitations of the existing literature, is uh, to find a large enough number of patients with Barrett's esophagus who are under continued observation until they develop a lar relatively large number of cases of cancer that enables any meaningful examination. So the uniqueness of our cohort is we employed uh, the national data sets of the Department of Veteran Affairs in the United States, which covers uh, depending on the year, approximately 130 hospitals nationwide, and identified close to uh, 30,000 patients with Barrett's esophagus, and then applied a set of inclusion and exclusion criteria meant to uh, prune this cohort into a cohort that would resemble what most providers in clinical practice would consider reasonable candidates for endoscopic surveillance. That is, we removed patients who had uh, severe comorbid conditions that would shorten their lifespan. We removed patients who had previous surgeries to their stomach or their esophagus. And we kept the rest, and then we followed them through the electronic data records of the VA until they either developed cancer or died, or the end of the follow-up, which was several years after the identification of Barrett's esophagus. After that, we examined all cases with cancer that developed in this cohort of 30,000 Barrett's with esophagus and reviewed their detailed medical records to indeed verify the diagnosis of esophageal adenocarcinoma stage it according to the medical record and tumor board notes, identify if they received any sort of treatment for esophageal adenocarcinoma, look at their cause of death, whether it was related to cancer or not, and then look whether they're alive or not. So the, the uniqueness of this cohort is we were able to identify uh, more than 400 verified cases of esophageal adenocarcinoma that arose in a cohort with a known Barrett's esophagus uh, years earlier, uh, and we were able to, to register and identify uh, virtually all of their clinical uh, and medical characteristics. The figure one in your paper outlines the study design, and you very eloquently described this to us now. So what were your study outcomes from this? So... Um, the, the, the broad findings were that in the 400-plus cases of esophageal adenocarcinoma, um, approximately uh, half of these cases, to be specific, 209, uh, were diagnosed as a result of what we characterized as surveillance endoscopy. 
and the other half was diagnosed as a result of anything that is not surveillance, which was mostly uh, looking for symptoms like dysphagia or bleeding. And what we found that in the first group, which was diagnosed through surveillance endoscopy, there was a significantly higher proportion of patients who were diagnosed at an earlier stage of cancer, a significantly higher proportion of patients that received the major surgery esophagectomy, which is typically reserved for those who have hope for cure. And most importantly, we found a longer lifespan, significantly so, among the group that received uh, endoscopic surveillance before their diagnosis compared to the other group, and a lower cancer-related death uh, in this group. So in other words, all the outcomes uh, were better in the group that received endoscopic surveillance. Now, a, an important feature of our analysis is we tried to uh, explain why these things happened. And our logic was that the increase in esophageal surgery uh, treatment can only be explained or should be explained by the fact that you detect earlier stage. And if there's a benefit in mortality, then it should be explained by the fact that people were detected early and received treatment because that is the logic of screening or surveillance. And indeed, using uh, statistical methods of, of mediation techniques, we've shown that it, almost all the benefit in detecting early uh, in, in, in subjecting people to curative therapy resulted from the fact that they were detected with an early cancer and that most, but not all, of the benefit in mortality and reduction in cancer-related deaths resulted because patients received potentially curative therapy. In other words, the findings were not explained or could not be explained by uh, biases in treatment, by a healthy volunteer bias, uh, or things like that, and they were explained by the logic of surveillance and its consequences. So you've touched on this a little bit, um, but did you identify potential confounders, and how, how did you account for these in your analysis? Uh, yes, so the, the, the major limitation of this study and almost all studies in the field of Barrett's and cancer is the studies tend to be uh, observational studies, non-interventional. So this study was not designed uh, originally when the data were collected and performed. We were not designed to test this hypothesis. We just collected what happened during life and we analyzed it. So therefore, there are multiple sources of important biases uh, that need to be considered and the confounders that may explain this bias need to be identified and adjusted for. Uh, the first of those is, is the so-called healthy volunteer bias or healthy patient bias. And simply speaking, patients who with Barrett's who are offered and receive endoscopic surveillance, um, one may suspect that this group of patients tend to be healthier because they agree to have endoscopy or more health conscious because they undergo several endoscopic examinations, or their physicians are more obsessive or more in tuned into the surveillance issue. Um, so 
if if indeed this healthy uh, bias is there, then perhaps the gain in in survival and reduction in mortality is not a result of the endoscopic surveillance, but it's a result of the fact that you're surveying people who are healthier to start with. So the confounders that we collected to adjust for this potential uh, bias is uh, demographic factors, most importantly age, race, and sex, uh, comorbid medical conditions such as cardiac disease, lung disease, concomitant cancer. We actually eliminated those with concomitant cancer. So that was the, the, the purest form of collecting and eliminating confounders. And then we calculated using a, a statistical technique called propensity score, a comorbidity score. Simply spoken is we had imputed or we inputted all the medical, psychological conditions that may affect survival, entered it in a model, and created a score for every person in the study, higher score meaning more comorbidity, lower score, lower comorbidity, and adjusted all of our analysis for this propensity score. And uh, the bottom line is, while it did attenuate or reduce some of the benefit, it did not explain it fully, and it did not remove it. Uh, so that was a major uh, source of confounding uh, that we accounted for. So you talked about healthy volunteer bias, but your discussion also talked about length bias and lead time bias. Was this also included in that uh, score that you applied, or how did you approach that? Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, the staple of, of uh, biases that are inherent to studies uh, that deal with screening and surveillance include uh, length bias and uh, lead time bias. Uh, length bias, um, simply speaking, uh, says that if you have a cohort and you implement a screening or surveillance program, uh, the cancers that are detected early in the life of the program are or tend to be the more aggressive cancers, and that's why they happened early in the program while the cancers that happen, let's say, five or six or ten years into the life of the program for the same cohort tend to be the slow-growing ones that they take their time and therefore you detect them late, and that the benefit of the program, if this length time bias is valid, the benefit of the program is mostly explained by the late cancers that are slow-growing that catching them would probably not do much. And if one looks at the early cancers in the program, then uh, the benefit would be removed. So in this study, we looked at the timing of the diagnosis of the esophageal adenocarcinoma in relationship to the time of the diagnosis of the Barrett's esophagus, and there was no major difference. So that basically length time did not explain the findings. Lead time is a more intricate issue and a more difficult issue to adjust for. And it basically says that cancers diagnosed by screening or surveillance, um, the gain in survival is a result of counting early. So you're just finding the cancer at an early stage and your observed survival is longer 
but it's uh, an issue of just counting. It's not really an issue of actual prolongation and survival. Uh, this type of bias is impossible to adjust for fully short of a randomized controlled trial. But what we've done in this study is the best possible technique, which is uh, adjusting for lead time bias by uh, incorporating what the lead time or the sojourn time, sojourn basically means the time uh, in which the cancer was already there between having no symptoms and having symptoms from previous studies. People have calculated that and they said it's one to three years. So we adjusted for that duration statistically in our models and it does not remove most of the results. It weakens the results, but uh, some of which remain significant, particularly if you compare pure endoscopic surveillance with pure diagnostic uh, endoscopy. So the results persisted despite adjusting while we're adjusting for these uh, three biases, healthy volunteer bias, length bias, and uh, lead time bias. So overall, what does this study add to the field? So the study, to, to our knowledge, our bias, is the clearest study in the field that simply shows that endoscopic surveillance among people with known or existing patients with Barrett's esophagus is associated with better outcomes, and these better outcomes include reduction in cancer-related deaths, but that benefit can be achieved only if curative therapy is applied. So it, it basically says if you do it right, then you're going to get benefit. What the study does not show, and that's where the criticism is, uh, how many endoscopies you need to do in order to achieve that benefit. So the cost, the cost effectiveness, the, the actual yield of the program is not discussed in the study. This just says if you implement a program, the cases that you're going to find as part of surveillance are really going to benefit. But how much you have to do to achieve those cases is not discussed by this study. And I do think this is important because at the crux of building rational cost effectiveness models is the proof of effectiveness. So if you don't have the proof of effectiveness, it becomes all a hypothetical exercise of what ifs. And I think this study at least settled one of the what ifs. So are there ongoing studies currently that answer some of these questions? I am not aware still of randomized control trials that test surveillance, so I don't think that's, that's coming anytime soon. Uh, what, what might be changing or adding to the benefit of surveillance is some of the ongoing studies that look at ablation in the setting of Barrett's esophagus. And let me expand on this a little bit. So what our study showed the benefit that if cancer is detected, those with cancer will benefit. What is happening today in practice is people are ablating the precancerous lesions before cancer develops. 
So if you add the benefits of a screening program into two folds, one, actually reducing the risk of cancer by removing it before it happens by treating the preneoplastic uh, lesions, plus the detection of an early cancer with survival benefit, that combo, I think that's what's happening in the field. And that will add uh, to the arm or the side of pro-screening as opposed to against uh, screening. So we're looking forward to um, uh, other investigators as well as ourselves looking at the value of finding out about Barrett's esophagus before the cancer. We're looking forward to studies adding the benefit of reducing the risk of the cancer in addition to improving the outcomes of cancer in surveillance programs. And I think with these studies, uh, we'll, we'll arrive at a better picture about uh, the benefit of surveillance to our patients with Barrett's. And finally, of course, there's ongoing studies to try and increase the understanding of the biology underlying Barrett's esophagus and its, its progression. So um, my expectation is there may be emerging biomarkers available that would aid in the surveillance program. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? I think it's, a, it's an area of, of active research and testing, and it, it really tackles the issue um, that I mentioned as a limitation of our study, which is now that we settled that if you find cancer, you benefited, uh, the issue is narrowing the pool to a group of patients who will eventually benefit as opposed to spending and exhausting your resources scoping and surveying patients who will never develop it. And in order to arrive at some rational risk stratifications, uh, biomarkers are needed. Uh, there are several that people have published on. Dr. Fitzgerald from the UK has a set of biomarkers that seem to predict progression. Uh, but the current biomarker that everyone uses is dysplasia. And that has its limitation and its invasiveness. Um, I'm not aware of any biomarkers that have really made it to practice yet to a degree that I can recommend it. Uh, but I know that there are several candidates, and I believe that the next couple of years uh, will bring some uh, at least clinically applicable risk stratifications uh, biomarkers. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to finish by thanking Dr. El for joining me today. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.